The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, David Sanderson, if you don't know me. And uh, do I even have to preach this morning? (laughs) Rob's just up here blowing us up. Man, what a powerful statement of how God works this morning. Incredible. But... Uh, I'm excited to be up here this morning. Uh, We've been working through the Apostles' Creed. As you know, Justin has been uh, just killing it. I've been really enjoying his sermons. He's been nerding out with me in the theology and getting into the weeds on some things, which I just eat up. Uh, But then he also just smacks us in the face with the gospel. It's been interesting and convicting, and uh, hopefully we can continue that this morning. So I'm excited to be up here. I've got the fifth stance in the Christology section, so the the section of the creed that's about Jesus, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So here in the creed again, we see that Christianity is distinctly different from other religions. We have a God, a religion founder, a savior, a prophet who is alive and who lived a human life. The prophet Muhammad, he died. Buddha, he died. The various gods of Hinduism never lived as a man. We are distinctly unique because of Christ's life and ascension. He carries, we learned about this yesterday at Porterbrook, he carries his humanity into the throne room of God. His human mind, his human nature, all those metaphysical truths, he carries that to the throne room which again tells us something about Christ that no other religion has. Now, this is a part of the faith that we don't think about very often, right? When we think about Christ, we think about uh, his birth, Christmas. We think about his ministry, his disciples, his miracles, maybe some of his sermons. We think about his death and his resurrection. We have holidays for those too, right? Easter, Good Friday. But when was the last time you celebrated Ascension Thursday? Anybody? That's a holiday. It's in the liturgical calendar. I just learned that yesterday. (laughs) This is something that we don't think of nearly as often as we should. We neglect the coronation and glorification of Christ uh, to our detriment. I hope that we see that this morning. That when we understand what happens in the ascension, and when we see the God-man, Jesus Christ, raised up and seated on the throne, we have a resource in that that no other religion has. And we have a hope that we often forget. So as we get, as we get into that this morning, I, I hope that you see that. So let me pray, and then we can jump right in this morning. Father, I pray 
uh, that as we open your word, that you would give us just a glimpse of Christ glorified. Even that is enough to change us this morning, and I pray that you would comfort us with the truth that we have a brother on the throne, someone who's walked this life. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind your word this morning, pray that I would be faithful. And Spirit, I pray that you would declare to us the things of Christ. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? Where does this come from? I first want to look at Mark. Uh, Mark 16, 19 through 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. This is essentially where the creed takes this section. It's almost a copy and paste of what the creed says in the Bible. It says this, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So just what I said, it's nearly copied and pasted, the creed, is from this section in the Bible. The problem is with this section is it doesn't really give us a lot of color to the scene. You couldn't paint a picture. It's not really a good historical event. You can't base a movie off this section. It's hard to imagine. And you essentially have the entire book of Acts in that second sentence. The apostles went out, God confirmed their ministry with miracles. There's a whole book of that. That's, that's what's so good about God inspiring different types of men to write the Gospels, because we have other accounts of the Ascension that give us more color, that we can understand more fully. So let's turn to Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. This is the main text this morning. Here it says this, starting at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said all these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what really happens here in the ascension? Because we live in 2019, it's really easy for us to modernize the ascension, to essentially turn it into science fiction. If I were to say that Jesus teleported or that he uh, flipped to the upside down, it's super easy for us to imagine that, to picture something from Star Trek or Stranger Things or Doctor Who, there's, there's plenty of places where we can go in our own imagination that the disciples would have had no picture for. We could even be tempted to believe that maybe Jesus just floated up into space, and if we had his space version of GPS coordinates, we could go there someday. But none of this is true. This is a, a modern mind trying to understand the text here. When in reality, we have a doctrine that's cloaked in ambiguity. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we're not really told. So this morning, as we try to understand what happened in the ascension physically, the mechanics of the ascension, we need to focus on what we do know. So what do we know? We know that Jesus went into heaven. The angels presumably declared that to the apostles, that Jesus was taken up into heaven, and he will come from there back to earth. But even that is not very straightforward, because the word heaven can be used for a lot of different things, right? I, I found three of them in my research. One, where God in the Trinity lives in harmony and joy forever. Two, 
where God, man, and angels live in harmony. Presumably that would be the throne room of God that we see throughout scripture. And the third one is simply the sky. So we've got three options for where Jesus could have gone. I think that as we look at the text, we can fairly confidently say that it's the second one, where God and man live in harmony. And it's kind of poetic here because Jesus is the perfect union of God and man. That Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, perfectly in union. And that when Jesus ascended, he went to be with the Father in that union again, carrying his humanity with him to that second place of heaven. What else do we know? We know that the apostles saw him disappear behind a cloud. But this again, not straightforward. What, what was that cloud? Because the first time it says that they were looking up into a cloud, but then the next stance says they were looking into heaven. So is that heaven supposed to be the sky? And then a sentence later, the author uses heaven to describe with God the Father? That doesn't really make sense to me, that the author would use heaven, the same word, one sentence after another, but for a different meaning. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think what we're seeing here is that the apostles were looking up into where Jesus went. And that maybe this cloud wasn't exactly water vapor. C.S. Lewis is on, is on my team on this one. He says that when we think about the ascension, we should picture the transfiguration. And if you don't know that story, it's where Jesus took his disciples to a hill. He went up there and essentially showed them his glory. Matthew 17 says that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The glory of Jesus broke through into creation momentarily. I think, C.S. Lewis would agree, I think that that's what the apostles are seeing here. That they're not seeing Jesus float up and then they just don't see him anymore because he passed behind a cloud. I think they're seeing into heaven. We have no idea what that looked like. We can't really. It's all speculation. Even everything that I've said this so far is just speculation. And that's really the point, that the ascension is a lot that we don't know. We can take what we're given and we can try to figure it out, but in reality, Jesus left. And he's in heaven. That's really all we can say for the mechanics of the ascension. But, sorry to say, because for me, I'd really like to know, but I'm sorry to say, that doesn't really matter. What matters is not that we can draw a picture of the ascension or that we could film a movie accurately showing what the disciples saw. What matters is that we know where Jesus went, what he's doing, and why that matters for us this morning. So that's where we're going this morning. But as we go there, I think it's important for us to kind of imagine what the apostles felt. Can you imagine seeing your leader for three years just disappear? The only thing that I could really uh, make seem like it is The Office. If you're familiar with that show, The Office, you ever seen that? Uh, my favorite show, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's about the Scranton, Pennsylvania branch of Dunder Mifflin, which is a paper supply company. The main character of the show, Michael Scott, Michael Scarn, however you want to call him, uh, he, he's the regional manager of this branch, right? And in the seventh season, he finally proposes to Holly Flax. His longtime girlfriend, it's a big deal. If you're in the show, you're all caught up in the love. It's great. He walks her through the office, shows her everything that they've been through. They get to, get to her desk. There's tons of candles everywhere. He starts to propose. He gets down on one knee, and the candles set off the fire alarm, and there's just water falling from the sky. It's like it's raining, but they're in the office. 
He finally proposes. Holly says yes. The whole office has been watching through the windows. They're screaming and shouting for joy. And then all of a sudden, Michael goes, we're moving to Colorado. Boom. The office is thrown into turmoil. Jim goes, what? It's, it's the best thing that you've been waiting for for seasons. We've been waiting for that since season four. It happens, and then Michael leaves. That's the feeling that I imagine the disciples felt here. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me tell you why. They've been, they've been walking around with Jesus for, for three years. They've been thinking that the Israel is going to be made the kingdom that it was promised, that all the promises made to the Old Testament uh, Jewish people were going to be fulfilled in Christ. They thought that that was going to be the kingdom of Israel, physical, governmental Israel reigning. And so Jesus dies. That dream is crushed, but then he comes back. He's raised from the dead. That feeling has to be stirring up again. And then Jesus says, we're going to go into all the world and we're going to preach this message. You're going to baptize people in my name. That's the most exciting thing they could have imagined. And then he just drops the mic and dips. He's gone. And they're left in turmoil. It doesn't make any sense. From like a leadership standpoint, you don't change your coach going into the playoffs. If you know something big is coming, it's a terrible time to change leadership. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So the apostles are left kind of dazed and confused, wondering what to do. And so the early church had to figure out how do we operate in this? How do we cross cultural boundaries? We're just Jews at this point. How do we uh, speak other languages, cross other cultural barriers, go all over the world? We're being chased and hunted down by our government. They're an underground organization with no leader. So what does that mean for the early church, and what does that mean for us today? Unlike the office, Jesus had been speaking about leaving for a while. The apostles had some heads up if they were smart enough to catch it. In John 16, Jesus says this uh, in verse 5. He says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going, but because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why is Jesus saying that it's better that he leaves for the disciples? For the disciples, for the early church, and therefore us, why is it better that Jesus is not here. It seems counterintuitive, but that is where we're going this morning. I want to look at three ways that Christ is continuing his ministry to us from the right hand of the Father. We look at it as three ways that Jesus is right, that it's better that he leave. Big surprise, Jesus is right. Three ways that it's better that Jesus leave. For the first one, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Justin didn't really give me a text for this sermon, so I'm going to take advantage of that. We're going to bounce around, uh, so have your Bible ready. Ephesians chapter 1, 18 through 23 is where we're going to start here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave to him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in the ascension, Jesus is raised up and lifted high, enthroned above all creation as king. Like I said, he took the form of the man with him to be seated on the throne. His glory is now on full display. Philippians says that when Jesus became a man, that he emptied himself. I don't know what of, but he emptied himself. And then when he ascended and became king, enthroned as king, whatever he put down, he picked up. Jesus is enthroned in glory fully in a way that he never was here on earth. So in the ascension, Jesus is king. And this fulfills a lot of Old Testament prophecies, specifically about one of King David's descendants being on the throne forever, the Ancient of Days, whose kingdom would never fail. In this moment, Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated. What do I mean by that? Inaugurated. This is important for us to understand this morning because for a lot of us, Ben Ben and Joel both mentioned it this morning, for a lot of us, it doesn't feel like Jesus is reigning. We look at the world and it doesn't remind us of Christ. We see brokenness, suffering, natural disasters, discrimination, selfishness on a global scale, we see, we see brokenness all around us. We're affected by this. It's hard for us in those moments to feel like Jesus is reigning. And if he is, maybe he's just doing a really poor job. But this is the good news for us, that the kingdom is inaugurated, but not consummated. What do I mean by that? Two words. Inaugurated is like Jesus bought a house. Right? My roommate Johnny just bought a 115-year-old house, and uh, we live in that, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. He's got a long list of renovations. Jesus' kingdom is inaugurated. He bought the house. Consummated is when that kingdom is going to be, as he intends it to be, fully restored. That hasn't happened yet. It will happen. We'll get there next week. But Jesus is reigning. No matter how bad the world works, Jesus is working, he's reigning, and it will be glorified. Christians have that hope, knowing what is to come, and we can celebrate the inauguration of the kingdom as like the first domino tipping. We know the end. That domino train is going to go all the way to the end. Christ's kingdom will be consummated. We have that hope. Christians used to have this phrase, uh, the by and by. I know we don't use it anymore. I wish we did. There's, a, there's an old spiritual that I, I put on the slides here that I think really shows the value of the phrase to me. So th- it's just an old hymn. We're tossed and driven on the restless sea of time. Somber skies and howling tempts off break a bright sunshine. In that land of perfect day, when the mists have rolled away, we will understand it better by and by. When Christ returns in the by and by, in the passing of time, when Christ returns, we will understand the brokenness and the hardship and the things that we don't today. When Christ's kingdom is glorified, consummated, we'll we'll get it. It'll make sense. For now, we live in faith, knowing that one day it will be, that every tear will be wiped away by our Savior and King, Jesus. Now, we have that hope, but Jesus left us not alone. 
He gave us a gift as he was leaving for that time in between. I want to go back to that passage in John 16. I'll, I'll read it again. Jesus, as he leaves, he tells his disciples of his kingly gift, something that he's going to give to them while he's gone. So verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The King Jesus gives his people a gift from the throne, the Holy Spirit, the helper, to tide us over in a sense between the kingdom's inauguration and consummation. Jesus continues to say what the Spirit does. He says, I still have many things to say to you that you cannot bear now. This is starting at verse 12, sorry. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from me, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So see here that Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Christ while he's ascended on the throne. We think that Jesus leaving means that his ministry is over to us, but it's not. He speaks through the Holy Spirit. He uses the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry here on earth. See that the Spirit declares what is Christ's. What are those things? The Spirit declares what Christ earned on the cross. Resurrection, atonement, redemption, restoration, adoption. All of the things that the Spirit, that Jesus earned for us on the cross, the Spirit declares. What does that mean? It means what we saw this morning in, in baptism means that the king of the universe knows his people, he knows his sheep, and he pastors them through the Spirit. So when our sin and our brokenness makes us feel far away from God, when we feel like we can't come to church, when we feel distant, God works through his Spirit, Jesus works through the Spirit to declare redemption, forgiveness to our soul. He might work through an MC. He might work through the liturgy this morning, a song. The Spirit could use whatever he wants to declare over your soul what Jesus has earned for you in his death and resurrection. When death feels overwhelming, when a loved one dies, when you're on your deathbed, Jesus works to comfort you with the Spirit, declaring the power of resurrection over your soul. See how Jesus continues to pastor his people, that he, he is the word of God ministering to the church, that he still, like the psalmist says, leads us beside still waters into green pastures. Jesus cares for your heart intimately. From the throne room of heaven, the Lord of the universe bows down to whisper encouragement to you. 
So number one, what is Jesus doing right now? He's reigning as king, leading his people. Number two, I'm going to stay in John 16, so don't turn anywhere. Because this passage continues to speak to the ministry of the Spirit, which Jesus uses again for another thing. So we see that the Spirit takes what is Christ's, what he has earned for us on the cross, and declares that over our souls. But he also declares Christ. Small difference, but big in application. He declares what Christ has earned for us, and he also declares who Christ is. And so through the ministry of the Spirit, Christ, in essence, is declaring himself to us. So number two, Christ is our prophet, revealing himself to us. Now, what does that mean? I'm sure we've all heard people talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus or walking on the beach with Jesus, having long strolls with Christ. It seems sappy. It can be overly spiritual. It, for a lot of people, it turns them off to Christianity, that kind of overhyped up spiritual mumbo jumbo. It, it doesn't seem authentic. But that is, in essence, the point here. Because Jesus ascended, we can know him more intimately. Seems counterintuitive. Because Jesus is gone, you can have a more intimate relationship with him than if he was here. Now, let me explain that. That seems like a pretty bold claim. There's a quote. Uh, from Pastor Garrett Dawson in an article on Desiring God. I think he sums it up way better than I can. Uh, so I, that should be on the screen as well. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Jesus is not somewhere on earth where only those with enough pull can get appointment with him. That's big. Imagine how long that line would be. Yet, the record of his words and deeds on earth long ago, the Bible, can, by his spirit, bring us into a present vibrant contact with Jesus. We can be assured that anyone, anywhere, relying on the Word and the Spirit can truly know Jesus in a transformative intimacy. We all become a present witness to the historical Jesus of the Gospels as our active Lord and Savior right now. What is he saying? This is big. What he's saying here, and I think what the Bible tells us, is that when we approach Scripture, the Word of God, relying on the Spirit. God works a miracle in that moment, and Jesus meets us there. The historical Jesus Christ speaks to us in relationship through his word and the power of the Spirit. It's kind of hard to understand, but Garrett, Garrett keeps going. Garrett Dawson keeps going. I'll keep reading the quote. The, king, the kingly gift of the Spirit right now brings Jesus to us from heaven, through the scriptures, through means of word and sacrament. Sacrament is those physical things that Rob was just reminding us of this morning. Through word and sacrament, prayer and praise, the Holy Spirit presents the historical, ascended, and still coming Jesus to us freshly in every present moment. So far from separating us from Jesus, the ascension makes the historical yet living Jesus, the man in whose face the light of glory of God shone, our perennial meeting place with God. So that, that begs the question, are you showing up to the meeting? God is going to work a miracle through your quiet time. Seems so strange. 
when you go to the text of scripture, are you expecting Jesus to work in that way? Or are you just going through the motions? You expect to experience Jesus freshly. As a Christian, this is central to how God works in and through us. It's how we know Jesus relationally. It's how we can say those sappy Christian things that we walk with Jesus, that we know him personally. Those things are true, as silly as they might sound. That God works a miracle in his scripture. This is what it means that Jesus is continuing to be our prophet. That he is the word made flesh, still in flesh, in heaven. So number one, what is Jesus doing now? He's reigning as king. Number two, he's leading. Sorry, number two, Jesus is prophet, revealing himself. Lastly, number three, Jesus is interceding for us as our great high priest. Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews. I want to look at chapter four, verses 14 through 16. I think if we ever, if we ever regularly consider Jesus' ministry to us now, this is probably the office that we picture. And I'd, I'd like to explain it a little further than we normally do. So Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, who, in, who, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus is our high priest. What is a priest? In the Old Testament, God, holy God, lived with sinful man, physically, right? They had a tent. God lived in the tent. It was in the center of the, the group. How can a holy God live with a sinful people? through the priest. God told them to have this position, a person who would make sacrifices for himself, cleanse himself, and then approach God in the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices for the people, atoning for their sins and making it so that uh, sinful people can live with the Holy God. This is exactly what Jesus does. That's why Jesus is the high priest. The priesthood in the Old Testament pointed to the work of Christ. Christ Unlike the previous priests, he made one sacrifice on the cross, his flesh, his blood, and he took that to the throne room of God to declare atonement for all sin at one time. So now that we can, now we can confidently draw to the throne room of God because of that atonement. We talked about Jesus' uh, incarnation a few weeks ago. That ties right in here. Verse 15 points it out. That Jesus walked an earthly life for 33 years, takes that humanity with him into his position as the high priest, means that we have a high priest who is sympathetic. He's been where we've been. He's sympathetic to our issues. Jesus understands our weakness, it, it, even the simple things, right? Jesus understands what it's like to get a headache or to have a, a sleepless night. The, the tiny things that can just drive you crazy, Jesus has been through. This has been big for me this week. I've been getting the worst headaches for the last two weeks. It's been good for me to remember that Christ had headaches, and yet he didn't get aggravated and angry the way that I do. That Christ walked through that perfectly, and I can look to him in that. 
And he understands when I pray for grace that I could be kind, he understands that feeling of having a migraine. That, that is, as simple as it sounds, that really speaks to me. But Jesus didn't just deal with the small things, he dealt with the big things. Jesus had family problems. Jesus had family that thought he was crazy. He felt betrayal from friends. He had a government that failed him. Things that we can relate to today, Jesus walked through, and so he can relate with you. He was treated unfairly, unjustly. He was criminalized. He was killed. Jesus knows what you're going through, and more importantly, he knows what you need from the Father. So as your high priest, he pleads your case before the Father. Now, this is really good news to us because when we sin and our, our sin is brought before God, when Satan speaks accusations against our souls, we don't have to respond. You don't have to prove yourself against the accusations on you. When you sin, you don't have to overrule that with good works. You don't have to take that on. You're freed in Christ because Jesus responds. When your sin is brought before God, when the devil accuses you, Jesus responds for you. He points back to his sacrifice on the cross and says, I've claimed this one. He's forgiven. That's what it means that Jesus is interceding for us in our weakness. Our sin doesn't scare him away. He's not intimidated by it. He isn't begrudging, begrudgingly forgiving us again and again. I don't, I, I feel that. I feel like when I sin over and over again, one day Jesus is just going to stop. And that, that scares me. I don't know where I get that. Because when you look at the life of Jesus on earth, he did nothing but pursue sinners. He lived life on life with people who were devoted to sin, who relied on sin for their livelihoods. Tax collectors, prostitutes, he lived with them knew them intimately, pursued them, served them, and died for them. So why would his attitude towards sinners be any different from the throne room of God? Why would that change, seated at the right hand of the Father? It wouldn't. So don't think it, don't think it will. He still lives to serve and to save and to apply his sacrifice to sinners. So we can have confidence. The Westminster Catechism puts it this way. I really like the way it puts it. It says that Jesus secures for us a quiet conscience that withstands daily failings. That in your daily failures, when your sin rears its ugly head again, when you feel that guilt, you can know that Christ has claimed you, that he's forgiven you, that he's arguing for you before the Father. A quiet conscience that withstands daily failings. If your conscience is easily put in turmoil by your sins, look to Christ. Remember this role that Jesus has for you in heaven, ascended, pleading your case, forgiving you, continuing to pursue you against your sin. Jesus is, if you have faith in him, Jesus has claimed you before God. You can rest in that assurance. So as I close here, I, I said at the beginning of the sermon that understanding the ascension and what Jesus is doing for us now gives us a resource that no other religion has. I, and I hope that you've felt that this morning, what it means that the king of the universe is caring for your soul, that he's speaking to you and wants to know you intimately, and that he is interceding with you, for you, before the Father. I hope that you see that. 
but our problem is not just that we don't think about that very often. We live in outright rejection to those things. We want to be our own king. We want to be our own priest, our own prophet. We want to take Jesus' roles and make them our own. We want to live our own way. We want to live by our own rules. It's a very American thing. We want to be the king of our own life. We want to be our own prophet. We want to listen to our wisdom, have our own morals, have our own convictions. We want to be our own priest. We want to live a life that we can bring to God and say, accept me. Look at all the things I did. How could you reject me? Look at my life. We tell Jesus to sit down and let me plead my case. The ascension tells us who Jesus is, what he's doing right now, but it also tells us who we are and who we are not. We spend so much energy trying to be Jesus, and we fail every time. Why? Because we were not made to be any of those things. We were never intended to be king or prophet or priest. Jesus was. Jesus is those things. So this morning, I pray that we could just let Jesus be Jesus. It seems so simple, but we fight against it so hard. You're going to catch yourself this week trying to be king. Let Jesus be Jesus. And as we come to the table this morning, we're given a physical reminder of Christ's work for us on the cross. I pray that you would remember that that ministry, that work for you continues. Today, tomorrow, into the future, Jesus is working for you. As we taste his death, remember that. Father, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that you would just remind us of Christ's love shown for us on the cross and continued for us in his ascension. I pray that as we go from here, Father, that we would repent of trying to be Jesus and that we would trust in Christ's work, have faith in that and rest in it. Father, we we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.